In the past weeks, we've talked about impermanence, beginning to observe the process of change in our experience. We've talked a bit about the understanding of dukkha, or suffering. Tonight I'd like to speak about the third characteristic of experience. That part of experience which in some ways is the most subtle to penetrate and understand and is at the heart of the teachings of the Buddha. Really is at the heart of wisdom. That is the understanding of selflessness or egolessness. Both how we can understand that conceptually and also how it relates to our practice. How we can actually apply that conceptual understanding in our direct experience from moment to moment. To come to some understanding of selflessness, it's necessary to develop a very strong power of discriminating awareness, discriminating wisdom, which can distinguish clearly and accurately between our concepts and ideas of things and direct experience. When we begin to observe our lives and how we relate to ourselves, to other people, to our environment, when we look carefully at that and honestly, we begin to see that to a large extent, to surprisingly large extent, we live in the world of ideas, we live in the world of concepts, of mental constructs, taking them to be the actual, the actuality of experience, not seeing that they're the product of our own conceptualization. So the first step in coming to an intuitive and direct taste of selflessness, we must distinguish our concepts of things from the direct experience of them. Some concepts that are very powerful in our lives and in our minds. For example, the concept of time. We all have quite a strongly conditioned idea of past and future. And I hope that by now you've seen quite clearly how much of our time is spent in past and future. We spend a good deal of our lives lost in thoughts. When we look to see what the past and future what that actually is, something very interesting occurs. 
the sitting, watching the in and out or the rising, falling. And certain thoughts appear in the mind, certain kinds of thoughts. They're remembrances or recollections or memories. And we put a name or we put a concept onto that category of thought. We call it past. And it's at this point that we create the deeply conditioned concept of time in our mind. Because we, we are not satisfied with simply recognizing that that category of thought has arisen. Because that would be fine. But we do something else at that point. We take this category that we've created, which is called past, based on these different kinds of thoughts, and somehow, with tremendous mastery, we manage to take that concept and throw it outside of us, in back of us someplace, as if the past exists as a reality back there from which we've come. And we live as if the past exists outside of the thought in the present moment. We do the same thing with future. We're sitting, minding our own business, attentive to the breath, to sensations, going along. And then thoughts arise in the mind of planning, of imagining, of anticipating, of worrying, all kinds of thoughts. We put a label or category of future onto them And again, with the same mental gymnastic, we throw that concept out of us, ahead of us, creating the idea of a reality that's out there waiting for us to catch up to it. And yet when we actually look to see what's happening, what our experience is of past and future, what is it? And some thoughts arising in the moment, passing away, That is the only way that we experience past and experience future. Experienced as a thought in the present moment. Can you see how enlightening it is? How lightening, how unburdening it is to begin to appreciate that time is a concept and that this huge weight which we carry around, the huge weight of the future or of the past, which is a tremendous burden on the mind, actually does not exist except as we create it by getting lost in that particular concept. And that when we're settled back into the moment and simply tuned to what is happening in the moment, see these thoughts arise, they're they're like mind bubbles. They arise, pass away. Michelle brought, the other day, uh, bought a little present for Rishi, deepest son, of these... mm -hmm. You know, the bubbles that you stick the stick in. And they're beautiful, beautiful bubbles. And 
They bubble out and then pop. Our thoughts are just like that. The future, the past, is just like those bubbles. They arise, vanish. But because we confuse our concept with the direct experience of those thoughts, we've created this monster. And we've created this monster of time which weighs us down. And you can see how it works very pragmatically and very clearly in the retreat. How many different kinds of time thoughts have you had since you're here? And have you noticed how it conditions or affects your attitude? You know, the thought can come up two and a half more months. (laughs) I'll never make it. How many liftings is that? (laughs) It's horrendous. (laughs) Or it can be on the other side. Sometimes the mind starts saying, ah, only two and a half more months. I I wish it was a year. When those few moments when one is actually enthusiastic. (laughs) And all of those are thoughts about time, taking time to be real, which then condition how we experience the present moment. And so it's very freeing if we can be mindful enough simply to see it as a thought arising and passing, And we go to the next moment, the next experience, arising and passing. And it's in that way that we begin to drop in to a sense of timelessness. Because we're not creating or getting lost in the concept of time that we've constructed. There are other concepts which are very strong in the mind and reinforce the sense of self. There's a kind of concept of ownership or possessiveness. And it's amazing how insidious it is in terms of overwhelming the mind. During the retreat that we just finished during the summer, as you've probably noticed here, Generally, after some time, you know, you go for lunch or breakfast and you have your place in the dining room where you sit each day. One day, I was walking into the dining room very mindfully, taking my food, and somebody was in my chair. (laughs) It was amazing, the reaction. (laughs) It was like the whole world had gone you know, a little askew. (laughs) Where is that coming from? What What is going on in the mind when one can become so identified with a place in the dining room? And that's, that's obviously a very little example of a much bigger phenomenon. We identify a lot with different situations or people or possessions We claim them as being I or as being mine. And so we create in that identification a strong sense of self, a strong sense of I.
self-images are another kind of concept. And again, you've probably noticed quite clearly some of the strong tapes in the mind that play in the mind about ourselves and about the kind of person we are. And often in, in the yogi mind, which... is its own special kind of mind. (laughs) These self-images become so strong, the tapes in the mind become so strong, you know, and we feel sorry for ourselves, or we feel proud of ourselves, or we're worthless, or we're wonderful, or, you know, we're great yogis, or we're total failures. Now, all of those images, if we're not aware, if we're not mindful, that they're simply thoughts in the mind. They're simply these mind bubbles arising and passing away. But if we're not so aware, we're not so mindful, the thoughts come and we believe them. We think they're true. We think they're saying something to us about who we are. We buy into them and we get lost in them. And so we create this strong sense of self. Forgetting that that is a concept which is arising out of the identification with those thoughts. And now what is actually happening is thought is arising in the mind, arising and passing away. When we see that clearly, when we see the thought for what it is, namely a thought, words in the mind, then there's no problem. We don't create that strong personal identity in it. We let the thought come and go, understand that the particular content has been conditioned by the various experiences in our lives, but it doesn't solidify the sense of ego, the sense of I. So it's particularly helpful to be vigilant and watchful for these self-image tapes. These, These thoughts in the mind which are describing us to ourselves. They're very uh, seductive. There's the concept of time, there's the concept of possessiveness or ownership, of self-image. The root concept, the one that is at the center or depth of our conditioning, and the one that is the basis of all the different kinds of suffering in our lives, is the concept of self, the concept of I, the concept of me. We all live our lives as if there is an I, as if there is some permanent entity who we are. And go up to anybody and ask them, do you exist? Is there a you? Very rare person who would say no. It's very deeply conditioned How can we understand the conceptual nature of it? 
Just as we've created the concept of past and future out of certain thoughts, we have also created the concept of time, excuse me, the concept of self, out of certain identifications with this process. And so we look very carefully, we investigate to see how that is happening. What are we identifying with that is creating this very strong ego, this very strong I, this strong self? There are different ways of understanding or um, talking about the, the experiences which are liable to be identified with. In one of the formulations, which is one of the classical ones from the Buddhist teaching, he talks about the different kinds of reality which can be experienced directly free of concept, free of idea. What are these realities? The first of them is the reality of the physical elements. And in the Buddhist mm, terminology, they're called earth, air, fire, and water. What that means is, the earth element is the element of extension, of hardness. When you, when you put your foot on the ground, and you feel that contact, the hardness, or the softness, the earth element. Heat or cold is the fire element. Movement is the air element. Cohesion, keeping everything together, is the water element. And then there's color and taste and odor and nutritional, nutritional element, nutritional quality in phenomena. These are the characteristics of the material elements. You may have wondered why in the interviews there's been so much prodding to experience the walking or the rising and falling in terms of the actual sensations. So that instead of the idea of simply being aware of the foot moving or the abdomen rising, the emphasis has been on what are the sensations that are experienced. Because foot and leg and abdomen and body are concepts. That's the name of the form. And by looking at the actual sensation, we can drop to the level of direct experience, of pressure, of tightness, of heat, of cold, of throbbing, of pulsing. That can be experienced directly without any name, without any concept, although we use a name to report it or describe it. Why is it important? Why not stay on the level of concept? And the world seems to function reasonably well. Not great, but it's going along in this world of concepts. Why do we put so much effort into 
dropping from that level to the level of direct experience. There's one critical, crucial reason for that. And that is that the concepts we have, the names that we give to things, don't change. We use the same word, the same name, the same concept. And so, today I'm a man, and yesterday I was a man, and the day before, and last year, and next year I'll be a man. Or I have a leg today, and I have a leg tomorrow. We'll have, probably, and in the past and in the future. The word leg remains the same. The word body remains the same. Man, woman, tree, house, building. And to the extent that we are living in the world of concept, we lose sight, we lose touch with the fact that in direct experience, everything is changing moment to moment. But the actual process of experience is very momentary, very transitory. We lose sight of that. Because we're not often living on the level of moment-to-moment experience. And to the degree that we lose sight of it, we get attached. If we really understood the momentariness of phenomena, there would be no attachment in the mind. Because we would see, we would see so clearly that it's impossible to hold on. But we don't see that clearly, and so the mind does get attached, and we create this sense of I, of self, of separateness. By dropping to the level of the elements, in the sitting, in the walking, to bring a very fine discriminating awareness to the sensations that are experienced, we begin to see the different elements and how they're working. Free of the idea of man, of woman, of body, of self, we simply experience tautness or tension or pressure or movement or heat. And in our experience, we see that those elements, those sensations, are changing moment to moment. So there's no grasping, there's no clinging. We don't identify with it. It's quite easy to identify with the body. I mean, most of us do it to a fair extent. It's not so easy to identify with the earth element. I mean, how many of you would say, yes, I am the earth element, or I am the water element? Probably not. Because when we are seeing those changing elements, changing sensations, the identifying process falls away, is deconditioned. Okay, so the material elements are one aspect of reality that we look at, we look at carefully. It's another aspect which conditions an even more subtle kind of identification. Because even if we begin to see that the body is composed of changing elements, and we, we get a little less attached to it, seeing that it's basically following its own laws, doing its own thing, 
still is very, usually, a very strong identification with the knower. The one who knows, the observer, the witness. So even if what is being witnessed is seen as changing and not I and not self, the identification with consciousness becomes the next stronghold of I, of me. That's who I am. I'm the one who's watching. I'm the one who knows. I'm the one who observes. And so what we have to do, as our practice gets more subtle and more refined, we have to become aware of the process of knowing, the process of consciousness, so that we don't, out of ignorance, out of delusion, identify with that process of knowing and thereby create the self in that. And this insight, or the awareness of the knowing process, is like a gateway in our practice to a whole avenue, a thoroughfare, of deepening understanding. So it's a very it's a very important area to begin to pay attention to. And we do it through the discrimination in each moment's experience between the material elements and the mind which knows them. In Pali, it's called the insight into Nama Rupa, into mind, which is Nama Rupa, which is the material elements. And to see that in every moment, there are these two processes happening. There's movement. This is the physical elements. And at the same time, there's knowing of it. If we had a fresh corpse in here and we stood the corpse up, newly newly attained to corpsehood, before rigor mortis sets in. Sharon's a nurse, so I don't even know if this actually would happen, but let's pretend that it happens. And you lifted the arm of the corpse and it fell down. Just the arm, like that. As far as we can tell, would there be any knowing in that corpse? Or would there simply be the physical elements of the arm falling? As, as far as we can tell, although you never know, but it seems that there's really no consciousness there. There's no knowing. There's no awareness. There's just the material elements. The body, the physical element, is comparable to the physical elements of that corpse. The physical elements do not know anything. It's consciousness or mind which makes us alive and which has the function not simply to manifest a fallen movement, which a corpse can do, but at the same time as the fallen movement, to know that it's fallen, to know the sensation. 
There are two processes going on in every moment. There's the physical process and the knowing of it. Suppose we lay the corpse down, give it a little rest, and kind of pump air in and out of it. You know, the abdomen would rise and fall. <laughs> Does it know? Is it noting? It's not noting rising, falling, is it? I don't think so. But the, the movement is there, the physical action is there. When we sit, and there's rising, falling, same physical elements, same stretching and tension and tautness and tightness, but in addition to that physical movement, there is also the knowing of it. It's to look at that, to see that, to intuit directly these two aspects of experience. That there's the physical elements which do not know anything, and simultaneous with it, not before, not after, comes the knowing. And so when you're sitting with the breath or when you're doing the walking, they are the easiest arenas, arenas to begin to explore this particular level of understanding. It's not exploring it by thinking. It's not thinking about it. Rather, it's using the mindfulness, using the attention to look very carefully so that we actually see, not see with our eyes, but see with our mind's eye, this insight into nama rupa, into mind, consciousness, and the object, so that we can distinguish the two processes. Why this is so crucial in the deepening of our practice, in the deepening of our wisdom, is that when we see clearly that consciousness itself is a process arising and passing away each moment with each new object. This knowing arises and passes every time we see something or hear or smell or taste or sensation in the body. In each of those moments, consciousness arises in that moment with the object. It knows the object and passes away. When we see that, it's a tremendously powerful deconditioning force which frees us from identification with knowing. And we begin to see that what we are is a mind-body machine. That's what this is. It's not that there's someone behind it to whom it's happening. Rather, what we are is this process of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object in each moment. This, this particular insight is called purity of view. And it's, it's the foundation of right understanding. And so we look at it, we look carefully to try to understand how it's happening. Again, not understanding with our thoughts, but through our direct observation. The experience of the material elements, experience of knowing that arises in each moment, 
The third category of experience, which can be touched directly and which also is a source of tremendous identification where we create the self very, very often. It's in a whole group of mental phenomena which are called mental factors. These mental factors are qualities of mind which arise together with a moment of knowing and color that moment. The knowing or consciousness, the knowing of the in-breath or out-breath or movement, the knowing itself is pure. Its only function, the only function of consciousness is to know what the object is. There's no defilement there. But along with that moment of consciousness can come a variety of these mental qualities, mental factors, and they condition how our mind relates to the object. As a few examples of predominant mental factors, greed. Greed is a factor of mind, which means that in a particular moment it may arise and function in its own way, which is to stick to the object. And so if it's to a thought or to a sound or to a taste or to a sensation, it's like glue. That's the characteristic of greed, stickiness. Attachment doesn't let go. This greed is not I, and it's not self, and it's not mine. It's just a factor of mind, a quality of mind, which arises in a particular moment, colors our experience in that moment, passes away. Anger or aversion is another mental factor. Sound, unpleasant sound arises, unpleasant sensation arises. When we're not mindful, the factor, that lack of mindfulness or delusion, allows or conditions the arising of aversion. And so there's the knowing of the sensation, and along with that knowing is a condemning, a pushing away, a disliking. That disliking is the working or the functioning of this factor of aversion. Hatred. Has the, it has the function of pushing away, of condemning. This anger or hatred or irritation or aversion is not I, not self, and does not belong to anyone. Rather, it's a quality arising in that moment, functioning in its way, passing away. Generosity, love, wisdom are all factors of mind. The function of wisdom in the mind is to enlighten. The example given is when wisdom is in the mind, it's like going into a dark room and turning on the switch, the light switch, and all of a sudden everything is illuminated clearly. When wisdom is arising in the mind, it illuminates what's happening. There's no one who is generous, and no one who is loving, and no one who is wise. It's simply the functioning of those factors in a particular moment 
coloring the mind according to its characteristic, passing away. So then people ask often, who's being mindful? Who's being concentrated? Who's making all this effort? Right? Because there's so much encouragement to be mindful and be make an effort. Mindfulness is another mental factor. It has the function to notice, to penetrate. Effort has the function of arousing energy. Concentration has the function of steadiness. It's like a jigsaw puzzle of elements. And so there is no one who is mindful, no one who is concentrated, no one who is making effort. Just factors working in their own way. So if when we look carefully and deeply and penetratingly at our experience, what do we see? We see that there is material, physical phenomena, the material elements. We see that there's the knowing of these material elements. And we look very carefully to see how in each moment the knowing is arising with the object. We can see that, we look and we see and understand that. We also, when we observe our experience, see that in addition to the knowing of the object, there are also all of these conditioning mental factors or mental qualities, which results in greed or anger or love or happiness or sadness or boredom or excitement or interest. All of those are factors of mind. So this is what we are. We're this collection or constellation of material elements, of consciousness, of mental factors. That's what this is. Another question then, which perhaps comes to mind, if that's what this is, and we should each confirm it for ourselves, it's not, most definitely not, a question of belief. doesn't make much difference whether you believe it or disbelieve it. It's a question of coming to see for oneself. Okay, so if this is what we are, then where does the sense of self come from? Where does the sense of I, which is so strong in our minds, where does it come from? Where is it born from? There's one mental factor which is most responsible for the birth of the concept or sense of self. You could say in this whole drama of mind and body, and every drama has a villain. There's one, there's this mental factor, which is the villain of the piece. And it has a very appropriate name. It's called wrong view. <laughs> What's the function of this factor? Because like all the other mental qualities, it has a particular function. The function of wrong view is to identify with various aspects of this process. So, for example, a thought comes into the mind. And if wrong view is present, it identifies with the thought, it claims the thought, my thought. I'm thinking. That is extra to the simple process of thought arising and passing away. The I or mine is extra. We add it to it. And it's the wrong view which is adding it. 
Anger comes, sadness comes, happiness comes. If wrong view is present, I feel so angry, I feel so sad, I feel so this or that. All that's happening is those qualities, those mental facts, anger is arising, passing, sadness arising, passing, happiness arising, passing away. Wrong view claims it. This is mine, this belongs to me. And so we create that sense of self, of I. The power of mindfulness is such, and it's a tremendously potent, it's one of the most potent and powerful of all of this array of mental factors. And it's so powerful because when the factor of mindfulness is present, wrong view cannot be present. The two cannot coexist. And so in every moment of mindfulness, we are deconditioning that sense of I, that sense of self. In every moment of mindfulness, we actually experience selflessness in that moment because we're not creating the self through identification. There's one other reality. There's the physical elements, consciousness or knowing, the mental factors. And it's the fourth reality which in some way is the motive or the inspiration for our practice. And that's the reality of the unconditioned, or the unborn, the absolute, nibbana, nirvana, whatever name you want to put on it. And it's that experience when the mind opens to that which is beyond mind, beyond this process of consciousness and physical elements and, and mental factors, beyond the conditioned reality of impermanence and dukkha. And this opening takes place, this opening to the unconditioned or the unborn takes place when the mind comes to a perfect balance, perfect poise, when there is no reaching out and no pushing away. And so again, mindfulness plays this very powerful role in our practice because mindfulness is the balancing factor. When we are mindful, it means we're noticing what's there without attachment, without resistance. Simply being present. As that balance gets stronger, as it gets steadier, as it gets more continuous, the mind gets so finely tuned And it's out of that perfect equilibrium that this intuitive opening to what's beyond mind can happen. And that moment has tremendous transformative power in our understanding and in our lives. So as you go from sitting to walking, as you go through the day, 
sometimes it might be helpful if you forget why you're doing it. You know, because sometimes the mind does forget and it seems to be a little bizarre. To reflect both that we're trying to go from the level of concept to the level of experience so we can touch directly these constituents of experience, of the physical elements, of, of the knowing, of the mental factors, and in the mindfulness of them, bring the mind to that balance out of which the deepest kind of liberation can take place. That's what we're doing in every moment of deep attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.